and welcome back. How are we getting on? How are we getting on? How are we doing? Today we're joined by a very, very talented man. He kind of does everything, but it's better to hear from him. So how about you introduce yourself? Oh, well, my name is Benjamin Mayer McKay. I've been working in the arts for a couple of decades now uh, in musical theatre and theatre, podcasting. I've hosted radio programs and do a bit of stand-up comedy and producing as well. So there's nothing you can't stop me from doing. <laughs> Director, producer, actor, comedian, writer, musician, and podcast host. You do everything. Would you not just think of like, doing one? <laughs> no, you got, you got love for all of them. Um, but obviously you have to start somewhere. So where did your career in the arts begin? Um, I suppose the moment that I decided it was what I wanted to do was when I first saw Phantom of the Opera uh, with Anthony Waller and Marina Pryor a very long time ago in Australia. And I was, I was utterly captivated by everything happening on stage in front of me. And I went, this is what I want to do. I want to make people feel the way I feel. I, I want to elicit these kinds of emotions. I want to work in this space and you know, sort of create theatre magic. So I started taking drama classes and then music lessons and just sort of working at it and working at it. Uh, and I started auditioning. Obviously, you know, when you're a young kid, there's a lot of opportunities like drama schools and, and theatre programs are not attached to a school, but sort of through drama schools. So I, I think I got on stage for the first time at around five and then four years later, booked my first professional TV commercial. So, so I guess that was really the starting point. Yeah. Yeah. So probably not the easiest to get into in Australia, would it be? Because mm. mm. um, nobody want to think of like people getting into acting very easily and so on. I think the States, not really Australia. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th there's not a whole lot of respect for the arts here in Australia. I think that's the first hurdle to jump through. Um, I'm not sure how well you or your listeners have been following Australian politics, but uh, back in April, the government promised a $250 million COVID arts sort of help out, bail out, and that money now in October has yet to be assigned or distributed or signed off on. So wow. there's just no care for the arts. Um, like even the schools that I were, was at over time didn't really sort of the arts didn't factor into their career paths. So there was definitely a lot of, a lot of hurdles and a sort of lack of recognition of what I was doing. And the opportunities weren't many, but because it wasn't encouraged, there weren't a whole lot of people fighting for those opportunities, especially in the early and mid 2000s. Now it's a bit different. Now sort of through the internet, people are emboldened to pursue an artistic career. So there's a lot more people going for those same jobs. Uh, but thankfully now I've sort of got a step ahead of them because I've got the experience. Yeah, you got the advantage. Um, just going back on what you said there a second ago about uh, they were going to dedicate money to the arts in Australia, but they've yet to do so. Could you mm. talk a bit more about that? You've just like, frozen. What was that? Sorry. Okay. So what are they trying to do like to keep uh, the industry going uh, mm -hmm. in Australia? It is, we're just going to like uh, subsidize uh, people to get back at working in the arts or what was going on? Um, so now we're not in a terrible position COVID wise. Um, we're, we're 
quite low cases, especially where I am in South Australia. But uh, the, the government hasn't done a whole lot. There initially were some emergency relief grants um, for artists, which were about $5,000, which is not to be laughed at. But I don't know anyone who actually got one of those. And I, I sat down with one of my other artistic friends the other week, Matt Tarrant, and we went, neither of us could actually identify one person who had got one. So I think that's somewhat telling. But from a federal government level, nothing has been done at all. Some artists have been eligible for the job keeper program that the government has set up in general, but that's not art specific. That's just designed to target people with regular employment who had been you know, laid off or had less work. Yeah. I've been very lucky for the past two months. I have had that. That's primarily because I'm a producer, not because I'm an actor. That program really leads actors and entertainers and people without long-term contracts out in the street. Things are starting to pick up and plans are being made for 2021 because we are in an okay position. You still can't have large crowds or gatherings. Those shows are very small, but there are a couple of shows, especially in Brisbane and Perth and Adelaide. So some artists are getting a little bit of work, but on a whole, the industry was brought to its knees and no one did anything about yeah. it. Yeah, something similar happened here. There was basically no productions for... Actually, there was, there was one production here, as far as I know, and everything else was on yeah. standby. It wasn't happening. But then again, in terms of Irish shows, there's only, like, a handful of them, to be honest. There's not a lot of Irish... Yeah. I could probably name them all on my fingers. <laughs> yeah, in terms of TV shows, very few were going ahead. But in terms of movies, they, they, they kept going. Um, so... How has COVID affected productions in Australia? Have they just been put to a standstill or are they still allowed to go? What's going on? Yeah, no, everything was put to a standstill or cancelled. So I was supposed to be on a nine-month tour this year, um, which would have taken me out of the country as well. But I got two months into that and COVID hit. And uh, yeah, everything was cancelled. Uh, you know, I was locked in my house for 12 weeks. Uh, it was very immediate. Um, the first what the government or the industry calls major production is opening in December, supposedly, and that's Frozen. Uh, Disney have invested to open that, but even that's opening at half or quarter capacity, dependent on restrictions. And obviously not many companies can afford to run a show at such limited uh, seating, but Disney has the money. Yeah. I know they're planning to open uh, a musical production of Sondheim's Pippin in November, but that's still very up in the air because Sydney has had more cases recently. The smaller sort of um, under 400 seat productions have started to reopen, but only selling 80-ish seats. And it's very difficult to make a profit when you're selling 80 seats in a 400 seat theatre. So yeah. we had six months with nothing happened. And then more recently, some of the little things, you know, shows in back rooms of pubs and stuff, which are not the high point of the world, but it's better than nothing. And I think people were really desperate just to see anything. Yeah, no, I get you. Uh, you're saying with pubs there, we don't even have pubs open. No, the pubs have really had it bad in Ireland. They, yeah. they were closed for most of our first lockdown, which lasted four or five months. They reopened for about a month, and then we're we've after we're we're going back into our second lockdown as of yeah. tonight. As of today, uh, we're back in full lockdown, like we were back in uh, June, and. Uh, beforehand so it kind of sucks um at least you're getting back on track in australia 
at least yeah. there's some good news in the world. Um, yeah. Now, Australia had a bit of a bad time recently. You had huge fires, and yeah. then they go away for about a month. World War Three nearly happens. That didn't affect you guys all that much, but then COVID happens. That, that, that's a pain in the ass. That's all that at one time. You must feel pretty hopeless right now. I mean, it does. This whole year, and a little bit of last year, has, has felt pretty hopeless. And what's really, really interesting is um, I, was, I was doing the festival circuit at the start of the year, and you can really track it. So you can see that people, you know, donating to the bushfires are scared of going out because of the bushfires. So ticket sales are lower than they should have been. And then that sort of got okay. And there's this sort of 10 day period where ticket sales peaked because people were feeling confident the bushfires had been dealt with and COVID hadn't hit yet. And then COVID came in and you saw ticket sales falling in until the point of everything was canceled. So yeah, it, it's felt fairly hopeless. And what is ironic is that I think it's three weeks ago now we re-entered bushfire season. Like we've oh. done a full, a full 360 already and COVID's not even dealt with, obviously. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much you know about the situation wise here, but Melbourne has been in the harshest lockdown globally yeah. close on a hundred and something days. I have a good um, friend living there. Yeah. He's, he's been just stuck in his apartment. Sounds pretty yeah. rough. Um, and they're just about to get out a little bit, not a whole lot, but a, but a small bit. And yeah, they're going to sort of get out straight into bushfire season again. So you're sort of seeing this ridiculous cycle of catastrophe and it's, I think it's taking a toll on people here mentally as well. We had, yeah. we had a, this used to be three, three of us instead of just me and Jared, we had Dara and Dara before he was living in Perth with his brother mm. and he was there from, I think it was November to February. So he was there for your bushfire season and it didn't really affect him. There was one time he was in a red zone. They were thinking about evacuating, but then, you know, it was fine. And then he came back home and that's when COVID came. So naturally, we all just we blame them. them for everything. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, it must be weird for uh, the Kiwis. You know, they're they're there in the little little islands. Uh, you know, nearly zero cases, no bushfires, and then looking at you guys, the next door neighbor, place is on fire, and there's COVID everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're allowed to travel back back into Sydney and Adelaide now. We can't go there, but they can come here, which I think is. It's quite interesting, but yeah, their cases have been so low. There have been more cases in the White House than in New Zealand. Seriously? Whoa. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, fair play to them. Um, but going back to you, um, what was your first role as an actor? Oh, um, we're testing the limits of my memory here. Um, I, I think the first show that I was in of any notable standing. I did some sort of monologue um, and I don't remember exactly. I think it was about an elephant at a zoo or something. Utter nonsense. Um, but like the first notable production I can remember being in was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I was, I was in the ensemble, but that was the first one. And that would have been 2005-ish, I think. Yeah. Sounds all right. Hmm. How'd you get into it? I auditioned. Um, my drama school had had posted, um, a, you know, a, a flyer or notice about the audition. So I went down to, you know, an open call and I did all the auditions and then you know, I eventually got cast, which was really exciting. So then would you recommend anyone trying to get into arts to definitely go for a, a drama school? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, 
some kind of training is imperative whether it you know it doesn't have to be a university type drama school there are other options there are weekly courses there are you know associate diplomas there's a lot of ways to train but i think some training basis is really important just because it does give you a really basic set of skills which you can't just learn via osmosis even things like stage left stage right upstage downstage like you can't not walk into an audition room not knowing what that means and you're not it's not something you can just google or, or learn yeah telepathically yeah. <laughs> well, we're not there yet. Uh, maybe with Neuralink and Elon Musk and the boys, <laughs> we'll figure it all out. But uh, yeah, we've had some mixed answers on that before, whether or not people think you should go to acting school or not. Mm. What was your experience like in it? Was it was it good? Was it bad? Mixed? It, it was very mixed. I had some really good experiences at, at some drama schools, and then a couple that were just sort of the uh the stereotype of of horrible and you know make you cry to elicit a response type Mm. thing and like that still exists very much um but overall i mean at the time i found uh, a lot of it horrible but overall i can look back now and go all of these things actually did help me make the performer that i am today do i agree with all the techniques and approaches no but i also sort of have that ability now to be discerning in what i've taken on i can go this is useful, this is a good tip, this isn't. I mean, one of the first things I was ever told in drama school was, if you can see the audience, they can see you. And that's a really useful tip. I mean, like from backstage as well. So, you know, if you're in the wings and you can see the audience, they can see you, they can see where you are. There's no sort of one-way vision. That's just a really useful tip to have all the time because obviously you don't want the audience to see you off stage. Well, there you go. And do you prefer being on stage or do you prefer like, being a producer, do you prefer being on TV, movies? I definitely prefer working in live entertainment um, and, and radio. I really like radio, but um, sort of theatre is where my heart is. It's where sort of my, my major passion lies, whether that's on stage or off. I just like working with live entertainment because there's nowhere else that you can see the direct reaction to what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that's quite magical. I've been doing a lot more producing and directing of late, which I have enjoyed. And I've gotten to work with some amazing artists, um, which has been such a joy. Yeah. Yeah. Must be fun. <laughs> Must be fun. It, it definitely is. Uh, I, I have a good job. Yeah. Um, what's the thing they say about like, if, if you enjoy. Enjoy what, what you do and you never work a day in your life. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Um, and okay. Obviously you do a bit more than that. You're also, a comedian and a podcaster and a writer. But uh, let's just hop into the comedy because I find that really interesting. How did you get into comedy? It, it felt like a, a natural progression, really, because I've been doing sort of, I've done solo shows as, a, as an actor and I worked with a lot of comedians. And I had sort of the basis of, of stories that I thought I could weave into something funny because um, I've been traveling for so long, you, you do sort of amass ridiculous and potentially funny stories. So I, and I had been being asked, there was a, uh, a local producer here, here in South Australia who had kept saying, come and try comedy, come and do some comedy. Um, and I was in a very unusual position that I got paid for my first ever spot, which obviously never happens um, because this producer had just been at me for such a long time being like, come down, try it. And I did. And it went, well, it's still the thing I suppose that makes me most nervous um, because there's no safety net. You're not falling back on someone else's script or someone else's direction. 
everything about comedy is on you. Yeah. And that's fine, but I suppose I, I work the hardest at it then from a performance aspect. I find acting in theatre quite easy. I find hosting radio quite easy. Producing is a lot of hard work, but I understand the basic processes of it and what has to be done to achieve a goal. Where comedy, I, I think, even though I've been doing it for quite a while, it's still something I'm very much refining. And I'm very proud of my last solo show, um, which was received quite well. And I really didn't know because it was probably the most personal thing I've ever done. But it went well. And sort of that has given me the most confidence in my comedic ability. Um, but yeah, I, I fell or was pushed into comedy, I guess, is, is the answer. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a handy enough way to get into it. But um, sometimes people don't agree with jokes. Some, pe some people find things offensive. Mm. Even if you don't mean it to be offensive, have you ever had an experience like that where you, like someone in the crowd shouted back at you or any bad experiences on stage? I mean, I've had, I've had some bad experiences on stage, <laughs> but it's not been as a result of um, people not finding or finding things offensive. It's more the, uh, you know, I, do, I sort of do a lot of uh, queer material or material about being queer and that yeah. doesn't resonate with conservative audiences. You know, I've, I've had all sorts of things yelled at me. I've had people walk out of shows, mm. but I, I've, <laughs> I have only ever told one joke that sort of gets an ooh kind of response. Like you went there and it was, it's, about, um, it's about the TV series Glee. Um, which I have zero respect for. Um, but What's the matter? There, there's, there's a, a couple of... <laughs> I've never seen Glee, but I just know it's like a bit of school who do like song covers, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Oh, Glee, um, yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was billed at the time as a very inclusive show, and obviously it is in some aspects, but they have some utterly abysmal lines that... Oh, the, the lines of the show are offensive, so I felt appropriate taking the town. And um, yeah, there's, there's one, that's the only a joke I've ever gotten ooh kind of response for. Yeah. Otherwise, then yeah, only people just taking issue with me, not my material. Yeah, uh, that is rough. Yeah, uh, that's that's not a nice experience to go through. Um, but look, it didn't stop you. So you kept that. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of accept um, that if you're going to talk about your life people are going to take issue with it if you're not you know a heteronormative straight white man yeah, it, yeah. If, you're, if you're conservative and you can't get over people being gay bi trans whatever um you're in a bad place uh, there's just something else to play there um I think also i read something today that the pope, the, pope, yes. the, pope the pope's cool with it now that's yeah, awesome i've seen that that is so cool <laughs> yeah. um I mean, fair play to him I feel like people in the church won't be happy with him, but obviously, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but you look, he's a Pope. <laughs> if he says it should be so, it should be so. <laughs> you know, um, fair play to him. Uh, and have you ever, sorry, sorry to ask, like, but have you ever experienced any like um, discrimination on sets or anything as a result of your sexuality? Um, I, I don't think so, or not that I've noticed. The, the arts is obviously a very diverse place yeah. inherently. There's a lot of queer people, um, 
course. I mean, sort of discrimination in the like the streets and the real world, absolutely. But that's yeah. you know that's not a unique experience to me. Yeah. That's any queer person or woman or person of color. That's just like the 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 badge you accept. Um, yeah. But no, I think I've been very lucky in my workplace environments. Um, I had one boss say something very uh, questionable once, but you know that's that's life. I still, you know, I still had that job. I didn't lose any money. I, yeah, you know, that's that's life. Yeah, and I wish it wasn't life. We said <laughs> that it's like no. it's so shit that it, that that is life. Yeah, you know, and like, man, oh. we've all had bosses though. We say some fucking slimy stuff. Like I'm just, I'm just a normal white straight guy. But I've had some questionable shit said to me by my boss before. Like, not mm. my current one, but, you know. Bosses, man, they, they know too much and they got too much power. Uh, sure. You know how it goes. If, if they find the nerve, they'll pluck it. <laughs> or they could be nice. Um, Thomas, Thomas here, he's a, he's a dictator as a boss. You gotta be, man. It's the only way you get them working. This guy does nothing without it. Yeah. Um, but moving on from that, um, you also do a podcast. So... Okay, so you caught on pretty early to podcasts. We caught on this year, and it feels like a lot of people did. I feel like everyone stuck in, stuck at home was like, uh, I'll be a podcaster. Um, hmm. But you caught on, what was it, Thomas? You were looking at back at his uh, beginning days. 16 as far as I went back, but yeah, maybe it was before that. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I, I put out my first podcast in 2008. So were there even a thing back then? <laughs> yeah, and that was that was the really interesting thing because it, uh, it wasn't the podcast that I've got now. That podcast, my current one, started in two thousand and fourteen, but I did have a podcast before. And as I was trying to sort of work it out, record it, I was explaining to people every day what a podcast was because Apple had launched it. It was part of like you know you could listen to podcasts on your uh, iPod. Um, not your iPhone. I don't think they were a thing yet, but um, definitely uh, on, on your iPads or your uh, iPods or whatever. And yeah, it was still very unknown media. I was always saying, you know, it, it's like a radio show, but for the internet, I think was my line at the time. Um, but I, I just liked the, how sort of easy and accessible it was to create. Obviously technology was slightly more prohibitive back then. It took a lot longer to edit. Um, the microphones were you know, less good quality or you, know, you had to pay a lot more to get something that was okay. But it still gave me a really good outlet to talk to people, to release content into the world on a global scale when things were more localized. Like back then it was very much, you know, I was an Australian performer where now it's, you know, I've done comedy or theater around the world. I can release products everywhere. Um, but that wasn't as easy then. So getting a podcast out there was very much a way to tap into international markets. And what happened was I did that first podcast. I ended that. I actually worked for our national radio broadcaster for a while as a result of that. And then the government gave them less money. So that position disappeared. But then yeah. I started my new podcast. So it was sort of a, a really nice flow and effect of podcast, high profile radio, new podcast, um, which I think is a nice sort of timeline of, of what that looked like. Hmm. Yeah, so definitely a fun story. Uh, you know, all those years compressed into a little sentence. Uh, so, what, what was you like? What did you want to start it in the first place? What made you see um, a podcast and be like, "I want to do it twice"? I, I, I think I, I've I've always been 
passionate about talking to interesting people. Uh, and that's especially those, you know, within, within the arts. And that can be quite difficult, you know, being in Australia, there aren't, you know, there are some really passionate people here, but not necessarily as notable and you need someone kind of notable to send up your downloads. Um, so I, yeah, I was, I was passionate and I wanted to talk to people and, you know, I didn't just have a, a radio show. I didn't have a, a magazine. I wasn't working for someone. So it was achievable to start a podcast, then email some people and say, look, I would like to talk to you. Give me 20 minutes of your day or 30 minutes of your day. And then I'm going to release this. And if you've got a project you'd like to promote, we can talk about that and you can try and sell it. And, you know, we'll see what happens. And I mean, I was, I was definitely lucky in a lot of regards because I've been working in the industry already. I, I had contacts. I wasn't starting off from nowhere. My name was semi-recognizable, especially to industry people. So I could call on some friends to just sort of kick things off or people I'd worked with. So I had a few podcasts sort of recorded already before I was approaching other people. And I could say, I've already had this guest and this guest and this guest. Um, so, you know, they look like they were in good company. And that's the thing about the arts. You're always calling on your contacts. Um, it's a very give and take industry. So yeah, um, I, I was passionate. I wanted to talk to people and I wanted to put something out into the world that lasted longer than one sort of live performance. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I got you. And I think we're on the same page, definitely with the uh, wanting to talk to interesting people. Yeah. Like, oh, number one, I'm talking to you. What more could we want in the world? Um, no, <laughs> it just gave, like, for, for me at the start is I wanted to talk to like some local Irish people, like local Irish uh, celebrities. We got that and I was like, okay, well, now what? And then we just kind of message, 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 uh, like celebrities or someone we look up to and got to talk to a few. Yeah, we, did, um, we, we, we DM a lot of people yeah. on Instagram, which isn't the best thing for it. We know that. We kind of started moving on to like email, emailing people. It's more professional yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we get that now. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm surprised you even checked your DMs, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I like to check them just to clear them out. Otherwise, the number just gets too high and my yeah. mildly OCD brain is like, you can't have a hundred yeah. and something unread yeah. message requests. Can't relate, but sure. Can't, yeah, I cannot relate. <laughs> At all. Um, but yeah, tell us a bit about some of the guests you've had on. You've had some interesting people. Uh, Thomas is a big fan of one of them in particular. <laughs> who, who are you a big fan of, Thomas? I'm a big fan of Christopher Judge. That guy's cool. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I have I've talked to oh well over a sort of hundred hundred and something people at this point. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, Christopher and I think you guys mentioned Nolan North and Troy Baker as well earlier on. Yeah, they all came about through my job at Supernova, where I host the the panels in front of live crowds. And yeah, those guests I got through there because um, I I don't know nearly as much about sci-fi as I pretend to sometimes. Um, but they were all really great people. I think like one of the most interesting chats that I've ever had was with a, a local musician called Timothy James Bowen. Um, and we have very similar world experiences. So the conversation flowed quite easily. Um, but then I, uh, afterwards, um, his mother took us both to lunch, which is not the norm for a, an interview, but was just a really nice that's, that's and it was nice um and yeah i don't know like we, we just 
I must have been with, with him and his mum for four hours. Oh, and like for clarification, if you're not going to Google him, he is 30 something years old. It's not like I was you know, interviewing a, a child musician and his mother was there. Um, it was just a really nice, um, a nice day. And I always enjoy sort of the, the experiences that come around things. So I interviewed an Australian author called Matthew Riley. And as a result of that, I ended up working with Matt on a project for six months, which again, like you did, that doesn't come around every day. Mm. Um, I, uh, I got to interview someone, a few people I've interviewed and then have become friends, which is nice as well. So I interviewed Ed Amatruda, who starred in Nashville. Um, and we just kept talking and talking. And eventually I ended up in Nashville, Tennessee, and we met up like face to face. And he took me on a tour of the sets of the TV series Nashville and showed me where they were filming. Uh, like there have been a lot of very unique experiences that have happened through interviews. Um, yeah, I, I think my favorite ever interview, it's not on the podcast cause it was done live, but was with Elijah Wood who plays Frodo in Lord of the Rings. Oh, that wow. was No, you don't need to tell us yeah. who he is. <laughs> oh my god how'd you manage that's that cool that's oh man that's awesome uh yeah so that was that was with with supernova which i got through my podcast and oh, yeah man. that was just very so exciting cool. i, I had yeah, a good if day they're doing that again can we come i mean <laughs> i mean like come on no um yeah that's, that's cool so tell us about that man elijah wood how'd that go yeah. Oh, that was, like, he was a little bit sick for his entire time in Australia. Um, so he, he wasn't super talkative off stage, but he, like, you know, really soldier on and put it on for the fans on stage. But he was a really nice guy. He's, he's very sort of timid and quiet. Um, he swears a lot more than I was expecting, which is funny, sort of when you have an image, especially as Frodo. Frodo was quite pure, and you have this image, and then he, like, you know, twists that a little bit. But he was really nice. He had some great stories. He talked, you know, about Lord of the Rings with a passion because what I find often is if someone's very famous for one very specific thing they can resent it a little bit or not want to talk about it yeah. like there was one actress who had done uh, who I interviewed once who'd done three major tv series and she walked into the interview and said I don't want to talk about this this or this and that there were her three major shows which sort of leaves you at a very interesting point of being like so tell us about the weather um you know <laughs> yeah. Um, but Elijah was great. He talked about Lord of the Rings. He talked about Wilfred. He talked about Dirk Gently. Um, he talked about a couple other films that I've forgotten. Like he'd shot something in Adelaide, uh, where I'm from. So he didn't, we weren't there. We were in Perth. Um, but yeah, he, he talked about shooting a movie in Adelaide and he'd been to Australia a lot before. And yeah, it was, it was a really nice hour. Um, I had a good time with it. That's awesome. That's <laughs> so cool. <laughs> uh, you're just making me think there with someone who's known for their role uh, and only that role like mm. we, we have a friend uh, James C. Burns um, you ever played Black Ops? No I, I haven't uh, okay so he's uh, he's a character in Black Ops 1 and 4 but he was an actor way before and still to this day like he's he's done a lot of work but he's just only known for the one video game character he played uh, I don't know if Nolan would be the same. He's known for a Call of Duty character. So maybe something similar. But uh, I wouldn't like to be like that, uh, known for this one role, especially if he resented it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's a difficult line to sort of balance. This is how you got to success, but you're going to spend the rest of your life talking about this one thing when you've done hundreds. Yeah, um, I guess keep, keep going, <laughs> keep going. It's kind of like Robert Pattinson. He's always going to be a, a Twilight guy. Oh, he's no, he's not. Come on, he's, he's yeah, going to be known as Batman. Come on. He's going to be known as yeah. Batman now. <laughs> the sure. Twilight guy who became Batman. He'll be, he'll be sparkly vampire Batman. Yeah. Did you see the, uh, what was it? Did you see the uh, Lighthouse with him and us? I didn't, but I heard it was really, really good. You, you perform in the arts. How have you not seen this? <laughs> I think it, it came be... out when our cinemas were closed. Huh? <laughs> I think it came out when our cinemas were actually closed. So it's um, oh, very difficult to see here. Have you been able to make it out to the cinemas since lockdown? Um, I have. But only for work. I, I'm still a little bit uh, cautious about large crowds, but I've hosted a couple of interactive screenings of the movie Cats, which is the time. Have you seen Cats? Have you put yourself through that? I haven't. I watched my parents. <laughs> Look, I, I, I don't like Cats. I think it's uh, an, uh, not a great musical to start with, and it's an even worse film. But the interactive screenings that have been happening uh, in, in and around Australia, where they can, they are quite funny because, you know, 70 to 80 people, dependent on the size of your cinema and restrictions, get very, very drunk and then sort of scream at the, at the movie for an hour and a half. And that does make it a lot more enjoyable, but it still means that I've now seen Cats three times. I've been oh. to the cinema six times all year and three of them have been to see Cats. I know someone who loves doing that is Tommy Wiseau, the guy that made The Room. He loves doing those interactive movies where you just, like, take the piss out of it. We, um, at one of the cinemas that I often uh, host for, we had Greg Sestero, who plays Mark oh. in those films. Ah. I saw he was on your podcast, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we had him out two or three times uh, to do interactive screenings of The Room and Best Friends at, when that came out, and it's well, yeah. It's, it's exactly the same principle as cats. People get really drunk, um, and yell and throw stuff. And like, you know, Greg absolutely loved it. And seeing how crazy people would go, I would love to get Tommy Wiseau out to do some screenings. But apparently, he doesn't leave the country. He, he won't. He won't come to Australia because he won't get on the plane, which I think is very strange, but also amusing. That guy is, is an enigma. He's uh, <laughs> he's supposed to be yep. very secretive, kind of. I watched The Disaster Hours, so that's really what I know about him. And also, I've seen The Room, but, like, yeah. he's very keep-to-himself kind of guy, isn't he? Like, Well, after years of bullying about his movie, yeah, maybe maybe that's justified. If he's a bit conserved, you know, uh, he's... Yeah, I get that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, um, I've already asked about your... if you've had any bad experiences in the industry. But um, one thing we talk uh, to most actors about is uh, the roles that they didn't get. We've had some pretty cool answers. Uh, with a guy in recently, he was uh, like eight in line for the Tom Holland Spider-Man. And he was there when Tom Holland came in, did like a flip. And actually, when he did that, someone left the, the interview room. They're just like, okay, I guess I'm not getting it. Um, hmm. We've had Steve Bastoni, who nearly became Negan. So what's your story? What's the biggest role you uh, missed out on? Cool. I don't know. I've done 
a lot of auditions, I mean, obviously, as, as any actor has a lot of auditions that you don't get, and you try not to dwell on them, especially the big ones. I remember um, auditioning for, I think it was called Time Hunters at the time or something, but ended up being Travelers, which was a Canadian series. But that starred Aaron McCormick, who played Will and Will and Grace. And that would have been really cool to be on purely to get to work with him. Um, I've auditioned for a bunch of Australian movies opposite people. Um, Robert Patterson made a movie in South Australia once and I auditioned for the role opposite him. Um, so I, I, I don't see it so much as like, these are characters that I could have played that I didn't get because the only reason the character then becomes popular or famous is how the actor interpreted it. And if I'd got that role and done something differently, there's nothing that would have said I would have done as well or the character would have become as notable. There's no guarantee with that. I always look at who are the people that I could have worked with or missed out on. I remember auditioning to play... The weirdest, the weirdest one I'll give you is I auditioned to play Rob Schneider's son at one point, and I don't think the age difference or the facial likeness is, uh, is nearly strong. Like, yeah, I don't know. That, that didn't work for me in my head. Like, I went into the audition because I'm an actor and you, you audition. But um, that was the strangest one. There have been some theatre ones that I've missed out on, which have, you know, they're always sad. Um, like, I, you know, I went into Hamilton, um, Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, but yeah, I, I try not to dwell on it too much because you do, you know, five to 10 auditions a week and your agent's yeah. submitting you for even more. Like, you know, if you ever go in to one of your sort of casting profiles that your agent runs and you say that they've submitted you for 20 things every day for the past month, but you've only done, you know, seven auditions, that can be pretty disheartening. So it's best not to ask questions. So you have an agent, yeah? Yeah. Um, okay, so we've had this conversation as well before. Um, if people should or shouldn't have agents, what do you think? Do you think you could manage without one? I think it would be a challenge. Uh, it's possible. Like I, I've been without one before and I've done work outside of what my agent has booked me. Um, so I have an agent for screen primarily. And then a lot of the theatre stuff, I, I have helped with some theatre stuff, but a lot of theatre stuff and especially comedy, I book myself or it's like a booking form on my website. You can go there, you can book me to do comedy. And I, I do comedy via Zoom as well. If your listeners <laughs> want someone from Australia to, to work for them. Um, but I, I think there is an advantage of having an agent just because it means there's someone in your corner with a really good understanding, especially if you're fairly new to the industry and you don't have an understanding of some of the, the methods and the industry norms, an agent does and they can look at a contract and go, this is fine and normal or this is obscene, they're extorting you, don't do this. I think sort of having a balance of having someone to listen to who's looking out for you, who can sort of sell you um, is really good. Obviously, you know, use your own brain. Your agent can still recommend things you don't like or don't want. Um, yeah. So have a, have a backbone, be prepared to stand up to your agent. But having one's not a bad thing. Um, but of course, avoid the traps because there are traps out there, like agents who will charge. That's not normal don't pay an agent. That's not what they're there for. They get a commission. That's why they sign you. There shouldn't be a nearly joining fee. every single agent in Ireland. Well, actually, nearly mm. everyone I know about, you have to pay for. Mm. That's, yeah, that is really unusual. And I think actually illegal in this country. You can't charge. It's because that's not what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to get you work. You're not paying them to find your work. They 
get 12%. So it's I may hire myself an Australian five. agent. Does he? Uh, you know, like, <laughs> you realize how such a, how stupid of a sentence that was. It's like, no, I'm like, the agent, yeah. <laughs> just, just go to Australia for every job. Yeah. You get a flight. Yeah. Might be a bit yeah. expensive. Not bad. <laughs> Your profit margin might not be too high. I'll be <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think even with extras agencies, I think there's only okay, there's only one paid one, but there's I think it's the best one. Um and then the rest I think they're cheap. I think they're uh, free. Um okay, so you you brought up a second ago about people being uh, new to the industry. So what mm. advice would you give to anyone new to the industry? If you're gonna pursue it professionally as a career be a hundred percent certain that there's nothing else you'd rather be doing it's a very hard business to work in from any aspect you know in front of camera on stage behind camera whatever it's it's cutthroat it can be cruel it can be very disheartening it takes up way more hours than you'll ever get paid for um you know you, you can't go to your friend's 30th or you know your dad's 60th or have a holiday for seven weeks and, you know, to a year, you lose certain things when you sign up to being in this industry professionally. So be a hundred percent certain that you want to do it. And then like, if you make that choice and if you go, there's nothing else I'd rather do or can do commit. Don't, I see a lot of people being like, if I don't make it, however you want to define that by 25 or 30, then I'm going to quit. That's not how this industry works. I mean, I don't think Alan Rickman got a screen role until he was 39. There, there's no timeline for success and there's no sort of logical ladder of succession in the arts. It's not like, you know, you have an entry level job and then you get this role and that role. It, it's whatever it is. So it's an industry unlike any other. It takes Definitely. a lot of hard work and dedication and you have to be 100% serious to it. And if you are, commit. It's not something you can go half hog on. Don't, you know, even with things like headshots, pay, pay the person $200. Don't get a mate to do it for 20 because your headshots represent you. Like, you know, you want the best photo. So you've got the best opportunity. Um, you know, try and find an agent because then there's somebody else selling you as well. You've got yourself. You're always going to be your own advocate, but someone else can be doing it for you as well. Give yourself every opportunity to succeed. And don't be afraid of failure because so many people don't think they deserve it. Like we all have the inferiority complex. Um, there are days that I'm like, what am I doing? Why do I have this job or this role? Or why has someone asked me to do this? But, you know, commit, believe in yourself, do it. You know, you can, you can sit around thinking about doing it, but that's not going to help you. That's right. probably the best advice someone's given on this show. Yeah. We've, we've interviewed 70 plus people. <laughs> Mm. Uh, that, yeah. Um, mm. Fuck. <laughs> that was a great answer, sir. Um, oh, thank you. I love it. Yeah. Um, you win. Okay, so, yeah, you win. He wins. <laughs> if we have, if we have the, uh, the trophy around here, Thomas. Um, I'm, it's being sent over right now. There you go. 12 to 15 <laughs> working days. Good luck. Um, okay, so with, with, with regards to your own acting career, um, if mm. there was one role you could do, what would it be? Like, what, what's your dream role? Oh, um, Cut off Fiero in Wicked. Say that again? A Fiero in, in the musical Wicked. Okay, why? Uh, 
I, I, I love Wicked. It's probably my favorite musical. I've seen it eight or nine times all over the world. Um, and I, I like Fiero for the reason that he is considered the, the male lead of that show. I mean, it's a very female driven show anyway, but he, he's like the male lead, but he's only on stage for 16 minutes. Yet every time I've seen it, it gets one of the biggest rounds of applause of like the whole cast. And I think that it would be so much fun to get to be a part of a show that I love, but then also do considerably less work than most other people in the cast and get a lot of recognition for it. Yeah, there's, there's lots to be said about the people who have very little screen time, but are absolutely loved. Um, yeah, I got I got seen a performance of uh, the Fiddler on the Roof. I think that's the right mm. name for it. And uh, there's, there's one one character, and he was only on it for like a small amount of time. But you know, when he went to do his bow at the end, he got the loudest applause. Mm. Um, I actually have to try to get some people on from that performance because it was amazing. Um, or like it's the same it's with such uh, a good show. Heath Ledger's Joker. I mean, yeah, the guy only yeah. had like not even a whole movie to himself, but like. People loved him. I think he was the first Oscar winner for a superhero film, right? I think that sounds right, yeah. And then I think it's also that uh, when Joaquin won one as well, is that Joker was the only character uh, by two people for the same role to win yes. an Oscar. It's mad. It's a big deal. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, it's been a fun podcast. We've got to bring it to an end. Um, Benjamin, if people want to find you, they want to follow you and check you out, where can they find you? Uh, I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram uh, at Benjamin Mayo McKay. Mayo McKay is spelled M-A-I-O space M-A-C-K-A-Y. Uh, yeah, you can find me on all those platforms. On Facebook, I've got the blue tick. Uh, Instagram, a lot of followers. And Twitter, I, I have a small amount, but I'm still there. So, you know, find me, follow me. Not in a creepy way. Don't follow me in a creepy yeah, way. That's weird. <laughs> well, again, th- thanks for getting on. And... Um... For everyone who's uh, everyone who watched, uh, I don't know. Take it handy. Have a good one. Bye.